you forget your squirrel tail? You forgot a squirrel tail, Jake. I think it was his bookmark. Unless you wanted me to wear that, I'm not sure. Thanks for reading, Josiah. Over a five-year period, photographer Zed Nelson visited 17 countries and documented the global craze for beauty. In his book, Love Me, Nelson writes this, Beauty is a $160 billion a year global industry. Body improvement has become a new religion. He gives the following examples. In Manhattan, women have their toes surgically shortened and secured with metal pens so they can fit into three-inch stiletto heels. In China, a procedure which was originally developed to lengthen the legs of those who had uh, birth defects has become popular for people who simply wanted to be taller. They sever the shin bones and stretch them apart with an implanted metal frame up to three inches of new leg bone can be grown. But obviously there's risks that are associated with that. Nelson noticed that everyone wants to look the same and sadly, unfortunately, the standard has become white Americans instead of people being made in the image that God had made them in every different way and variety. He saw skin lightening products in Africa and surgical procedures to westernized eyes in Asia. Women in Iran proudly walk the streets with bandaged noses expected to be the new owners of American-style noses. In South America, women have operations that make them look like the Barbie doll ideal. And blonde hair models appear in the covers of most magazines. Anorexia is on the increase in Japan and in China. Beauty pageants are now held all across the country, whereas before in that culture were considered profane. Zed Nelson was amazed at how common cosmetic surgery has become all around the globe and not just in Hollywood because banks all over the states offer loans for plastic surgery. American families with annual incomes under $25,000 account for 30% of all cosmetic surgery patients. Nelson's assessment of this is that our never-ending pursuit of youth is the primary cause behind this global quest for bodily perfection. He says, quote, As our role models become ever younger and more idealized, we are so afraid of aging that the quest for useful, youthful preservation generates an almost pathological obsession with our bodies. I think ultimately behind that is the fear of death. And also behind that is a sense for the perfect, which the Scriptures tell us in 1 Corinthians 15, will only come through resurrection in Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the uh, believers in Corinth have understood that Jesus was raised from the dead. But they doubt their own resurrection that will follow. They don't see how that could be possible. Sure, Jesus is risen, but, but not us, certainly. And in 1 Corinthians 15, as Josiah just read in verse 35, some man will say, how are the dead raised up? Or how is this possible? And their understanding of Paul's description of the resurrection was a corpse being resuscitated. Kind of like Lazarus in the tomb. And Paul will unpack in detail here how it is not at all like that, but it is another body altogether. Yes, there is some continuation with the old and the new. But Jesus' resurrection and glorification 
is a new thing. Is a new thing. Paul will first of all understand and make clear that to deny the resurrection means denying any connection between the present and the future. And so he's going to make that clear to us. And secondly, even more importantly and obviously, the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ absolutely dominates his thinking in this topic at every turn. We can't get away from that. Paul is convinced that Christ's resurrection was not simply the resuscitation of a corpse, but the transformation of his physical body into what Paul says in Philippians 3.21, a glorified body. And so the debate over this passage is, is you know, what, are, what will our resurrected bodies look like and how does that all happen? Paul doesn't go into all the details into that. But he does tell us that as Christ was and is, so we shall be. Now, if we're going to do justice to this passage, we want to, would want to go from verse 35 to 58 because it's one continuous thought, as you can see in verse 50. Now I, this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither does corruption inherit incorruption. So he's building to that. But for sake of time, we're going to focus on verses 35 through 49 and then pick up on that in two weeks after Don speaks um, next Sunday here. You see, the problem with the Corinthians is they have a misunderstanding of where they are spiritually. They think they've arrived spiritually. And Paul has dealt with that in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. They have said very, very obviously and clearly that, that they are mature in Christ. That they have, they have reached a level that they need to reach. And Paul says, no, that's not true. And they have a, a, an unbiblical understanding of the creation, the doctrine of creation. And Paul wants them to understand that according to Scripture, God created the material order and He pronounced it good. And in the fall, it came under the curse. And Paul understands that this creation, this world, must also experience the effects, ultimately, finally, the effects of God's redemption in Christ. And that includes the physical body as well. Because the expression right now of our physical body is under the curse. As you probably noticed this morning when you woke up, right? And rolled out of bed. So Paul will make three clear points in this passage we're going to look at today. First of all, in verses 35 through 38, the resurrection will be God's final work of transformation. The resurrection will be God's final work of transformation. What I want to talk to us this morning is, is, is the title here. Uh, from, from these verses, raised in glory, and what that means. Raised in glory. He says in verse 35, Some will say, how will the dead raised up? And how is that going to work? If, if resurrection is just a resuscitated uh, corpse here, what body are they going to come with? You know what happens when people die. Things fall apart, right? It's not pretty. And so their understanding of resurrection was just a resuscitated body. That's what they understood Paul to be saying. But that is not what he is saying. And Paul will say this in verse 36. You fool. You fool. You might say that sounds a little bit harsh. Paul talking to people. No, they, they, they are skeptical to what Paul is saying. And Paul is saying this is already encapsulated in who Jesus is. If you understand who Jesus is, the rest of this will make sense. They say, well, how is this possible the dead are going to be raised? What kind of bodies are they going to have? Paul says, that's a foolish question. It's the wrong question. And he gives an illustration. An illustration that all of us probably are looking forward to this time of the year. Our gardens in the winter. Looking forward to springtime. 
And I don't know if some of you already started uh, doing your little seedlings yet. Maybe some of you have, probably, some of the avid gardeners. And then the rest of us procrastinators might catch up to you, uh, or uh, we'll wish we did later on. But Paul says this, when you put a seed in the ground, it doesn't grow into a plant unless it dies first. And he says, what you put in the ground is not the plant that's going to grow. But you just put a, you put a seed in there, a, a grain seed or, or whatever you're planting. And then when it grows, then it becomes something different. Not different in type and kind, but different than the seed, right? And it's, he says it's the same thing uh, with, with, with death here. Uh, Amy Carmichael, who served in India and served many orphans, an outcast in India, um, there had a compound where she uh, had her orphanage and other places of ministry there. And the, 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 there was a walled-in part, portion of that that was a cemetery of, of some of the uh, dear people who she had served who, who, uh, who went home to glory. And the sign over the cemetery was the Garden of God. The Garden of God. I wondered, where did she get that from? I, I thought it was a beautiful picture here. And, 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 and she got it from this passage here. That for the believer, the cemetery is God's garden where he plants his seeds that will one day rise up. The garden of God. Uh, he, he says in verse 38, he's saying the essence to this effect, God gives it the new body he wants it to have. He says, just like a different plant grows from each kind of seed, so it's going to be in the resurrection. Uh, so the first point here is the resurrection is God's final work of transformation. It's God's final work. When you put the seed in the ground, it will bloom into the plant. But it has to die first. And when it blooms into the plant, that's our stage of salvation that Scripture calls glorification. Becoming fully like, there's no more improvements that need to be done. We, we become like the Lord Jesus Christ. God gives us the new body He wants us to have that can, that can operate uh, in, 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 in His new creation perfectly here. And, uh, and, and the work of resurrection is God's final transformation. When we lived in Oregon, there is a place, a, a town called Woodburn, and in Woodburn, they had a tulip festival every year. It was a beautiful place. It was kind of one of the plains, uh, one of the valleys here where they grew a lot of things. And then in the background was Mount Hood, which is a snow-capped mountain all year round. Supposedly a, a, an extinct volcano, though it's been rumbling uh, lately. Um, and, and, and if you, if those of you who plant tulips, you know that they, they, they come from bulbs, right? They're not like wildflower seeds. They come from bulbs. And have you, you, you've seen a bulb. It's, it's not very pretty, is it? It's pretty ugly. It's kind of hideous as you look at it in the bag or hold it in your hand. But it's out of that bulb, right? It's out of that brown bulb. As that bulb is planted into the ground that these beautiful tulips come from. And that's kind of what Paul's saying here. He's saying that for the believer, death is like being planted in the ground. And your body here, made in the image of God, but scarred and tainted under the curse of sin. That was once inhabited by a mind that Scripture says was enslaved to sin. When the resurrection happens, when you're dead, your, your spirit is absent from the body, right? It goes to be present with the Lord. But when the resurrection happens, the body is joined to the spirit 
but the body is resurrected in a way that reverses the effects of sin. There are no effects of sin. There is, there is as, as John will say in the book of Re- Revelation, there is no sickness, there are no tears, there is no pain, there is no sorrow. The resurrection guarantees that God's final transformation of all that was undone because of sin in Genesis chapter 3 is made whole again. So this first paragraph here of verses 35 through 38 introduces this idea of a seed that's sown. It looks like one thing. And then that seed comes up looking like something very different. And Paul doesn't mean that when you bury a body in the ground, a new one grows up. That's not what he's saying here. The point he's making is that we understand this idea of transformation. There's something that's connected with the old, yes. But yet it was without the effects of sin. And in that sense, it is different. And he emphasizes here that this is through the work of God. Look what he says in verse um, uh, 30, 37. And they which sow, you sow not the body that shall be, but bore grain it may chance of wheat or of some other grain. Verse 38. But God gives it a body as it has pleased into every seed its own body. God gives it a body. That's the first thing to understand here is that this resurrection is the work of God, the Creator, again. And it involves transformation, not merely resuscitating. It's transformation. And that seed, though it was a while underground, emerges here in its fruition. It also tells us this. That God's purposes are not thwarted even by death. You might say, yeah, I know that. Well, do you understand how evil and how powerful death is? The fact that I do not look like I did ten years ago is the effects of death on me, on my physical appearance. The fact that I forget things more and more is the effects of death on me. The fact that the, the new car that I bought and pulled off, the, uh, pulled off the, 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 the car lot is seeing signs of rust is the effects of death. Uh, all on the physical side, but it's deeper than that, isn't it? Because the fact that I want me to be honored and not you and me to be treated special, but not you, is the effects of death as well. The effects of selfishness and, and pride is, is, is all part of, 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 the, of the first Adam, that, the Adam that's under the curse. But notice, Paul makes it very clear that if there is a resurrection, then death is defeated. Not only physical death, as we're talking here, and specifically in context here, about our, our bodies here, the resurrection... But joined with that is the defeat of the curse of sin. And God's purposes are not thwarted by death. What is sown in death is brought forth in the life. And it will be with a believer that we will rise again. And death is simply planting our seeds into the ground for our spirits to be present with the Lord to wait for that day of resurrection when our bodies will be joined in transformation. The second thing we need to see here is that this resurrection will be a new genesis. A new genesis. Look at verses 39 through 41. 
Paul is drawing on the doctrine of creation in the book of Genesis that Moses writes for us in Genesis 1 and 2. And he says this in verse 39. All flesh is not the same flesh. But there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another of fishes, and another of birds. There are also celestial or heavenly bodies and bodies terrestrial. There, are, there is the, the um, uh, bodies in the, in the sky and, and then there are um, uh, things that live on the ground. Right? But the glory of the celestial is one and the glory of the terrestrial is another. <coughs> there is one glory of the sun and there is one glory of the moon. And another glory of the stars, for one star differs from another star in glory. And he says this in verse 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. Paul's making the point here that, yeah, there's, there's different kinds of flesh. There's one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There's bodies in the heaven, there's bodies in the earth. And the, and the glory of the heavenly bodies is different from the, what sets apart the earthly bodies. The sun and the moon and stars have their own kind here. And what he's saying is this. All the way from the fish in the sea, the stars in the sky, we're used to seeing different types of physical things, aren't we? And when he's talking about glory, he's talking about honor. Okay? And he's saying that God's made all kinds of different things physically, each with its own, each with its own properties in creation. And he's echoing Genesis chapter 1, where God creates the sun, moon, and the stars. And then the trees and plants, they have their seeds within them. And the theme under this whole thing is that the resurrection is preparation for a new creation. A new creation. See, there will be one day, Revelation tells us, when the city of God comes down to meet the new heavens and the new earth. It descends like a bride from heaven to the earth here. And God will complete the project that He began at the beginning. And your resurrection is a crucial part of that process of how He will do it. He will undo the effects of human rebellion, especially death. He will remove the great enemy that has dragged God's beautiful world into decay and dissolution and rebellion against God. And He is moving Genesis, uh, the creation of human beings in God's own image in Genesis chapter 1, 26-28. And with Jesus' resurrection, as Jesus is the one who is the second Adam, so we will follow the very thing we were made for in the first place here. Life with God, without sin, walking in fellowship with God, will be fully realized. And yes, in our salvation, we are given eternal life the day we were born again. And we walk with God in fellowship. And we walk with Him in fellowship because we've been cleansed. First John also tells us that we've got to keep confessing our sin too, don't we? That creeps in. Right? You've got to acknowledge what God says about our sin and we've got to, uh, we've got to walk in, continue walking in fellowship with God by His grace, by His power. But there's coming a day when we will not have to fight sin anymore. There's coming a day when you will not have to ask Jesus' forgiveness for what you did against Him again that day. There's coming a day when you will not have to apologize for another harsh word you spoke against your spouse or a disrespectful, dishonorable word you spoke against your parents. There's coming another day when there's coming a day when you will not have to not have to confess again before God 
you're stumbling again in that same pattern. And why is this true? It's because of the resurrection. Yes, things will be back like they were with Eden, but it's better than that. It's better than that. We're not just going to go back to how things were in Eden. We're going to supersede that because there will never be a threat of sin. There will never be a threat of evil. You remember in Eden, the serpent lurked, didn't he? In the new heavens and the new earth, the previous chapter before, that evil one is thrown into the lake of fire forever and ever and ever with no hope of getting out. That dragon is defeated. The resurrection will be a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth without ever a threat again of evil. Now, how is this, how is this guaranteed? Is Paul just spouting these, these, these things off and this is wishful thinking? Or is this rooted in something? And that's what he'll tell us in verses 42 through 49. And this is the beautiful part here. He says, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown or planted in corruption. Our, our bodies decay. We're, we're planted in the ground. This world is, is, a, is a world of decay in so many ways, in so many levels, isn't it? In layers. Even down to the spiritual nature of our hearts. Romans 1 tells us we tend to spiral deeper and deeper into sin and away from God without His grace, without His kindness. Verse 42 says, It's planted in corruption, but on the resurrection it's raised in incorruption. Immortal. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. Did you say today, that's me today? In my own strength, I am dishonorable. I am weak. I am corrupt. In the resurrection, he says this in verse 43. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It has raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. Now some of you are saying, well, I thought the resurrection was a physical body. Please understand what Paul means by this. He's not saying that when you are raised, you are going to be a, a ghost. That uh, you're, you're going to be a, a disembodied spirit. What he is talking about now is that your body is going to be, in a, uh, uh, be able to operate in a different kind of environment and a different kind of fuel. And the fuel for that body is the Spirit of God. When he says a spiritual body, it's the idea of being fueled by the Spirit of God. Remember the difference between the Corinthians and the world in 1 Corinthians chapter 2? The world, Paul says, was mere men, the natural man. And the difference with the Corinthians was because of the Gospel of Jesus Christ that they had repented and believed upon. God had made them not just mere men. They were not mere men. They were men of the Spirit. They were fueled by the Spirit. They had God's Word poured into them. They had His, His Word written in their hearts. They, they, they are people that God, that God looks at who are, who are not just mere natural men. Their hearts have been alive. They are new creations. And this is what Paul is saying here. In the resurrection, you are a new creation. And it's full sense. There's a natural body and then there is a spiritual body. And so it is written. The first man, Adam, was made a living soul. Remember, in Genesis, God forms Adam and He forms him out of the dust of the ground, right? 
Everything else, he spoke into existence. Uh, um, but but with, with, with Adam, he takes the, the, the dirt here and he forms Adam with his, with his, with his hands out of, out of the dust of the ground. And Adam's not alive until what? He breathes the breath of life in Adam. And Moses says in Genesis that Adam became a living soul. Now what does Paul want us to understand? Adam had life from an outside source, God. God made him and God breathed life into him. Okay? Well, look what he's saying here in verse 45 at the end. The second Adam, Jesus, was made a living spirit. Now, you'll notice there that the words was made, if you're using the King James translation, are in italics. This means they were added by the translators to kind of give some, some uh, the idea of what Paul is saying here. But literally it says, the last Adam, a living spirit. So it does not say the last Adam, Jesus Christ, was made a living spirit. It says the last Adam was a living spirit, is a living spirit. The first Adam was made by God, formed by God, powerless. The second Adam, Jesus Christ, is the source of life. He is the source of spirit. He is a living spirit. And it's a contrast here rather than a comparison. And you say, well, what's, what's that mean? Well, what he's saying here is that Jesus is not one who laid passively in the grave. Jesus said, I have power to raise my life up of itself. <laughs> Jesus is the one who gives life. And the one who breathed life into the first Adam in the beginning is the one who breathes spiritual life into us today. This, is a, this Adam was made a living spirit. He's a source of life. In verse 46 he says, However, that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. Adam was a, Adam was a natural man. The first Adam was a natural man. The second Adam is the heavenly man, the spiritual man, the one, the one uh, totally given and formed by the Spirit in verse 47. The first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is of the Lord from heaven. As is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy. And as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. What's he, what's he saying here? Saying, first Adam, first man Adam was a living person. Last Adam, Christ, he's a life-giving spirit. What came first is a natural body. And then the spiritual body will come later. Adam, that first man, was made from the dust of the earth. But Christ, the second Adam, came from heaven. Right? Earthly people, mere men, without the spirit are like the earthly man. And those in Jesus, heavenly people, are like the heavenly man. And will be fully like that heavenly man. And just as we are now like the earthly man in the sense that we identify still with Adam here, though we've been redeemed, we've been saved by the blood of Jesus. If you're in Christ, we've been guaranteed a hope in the future. There's just some things still that we're going to experience that Adam experienced. We're going to experience physical death, right? Unless the Lord returns before we die. We're going to experience that. We're going to experience sickness. We're going to experience broken relationships. 
we're going to see death. We're going to see sickness. We're going to see sin, right? We still share that with Adam. But notice what he says. One day we will be like the heavenly man. Now what makes that true? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. So this is bringing everything to the crunch here. That thirdly, the resurrection is guaranteed by our second Adam. The resurrection is guaranteed by Jesus. By Jesus. The contrast between the present body and the future one is linked here with Jesus. The two men, Adam and the second Adam, Jesus. And Jesus here is, is, is the one, the, the new model, so to speak, that we will follow, that, that God will, will, will bring, has brought out to show there at His resurrection, the prototype, the resurrection body of Jesus Himself has already been launched here. And we will follow in that train, as the song says. And Paul's saying that this perfect new humanity, our new bodies, Transformed will experience a renewed, deathless, glorified body as did Jesus. So Jesus is the guarantee here through the resurrection. But it's, it's, it's deeper than that. It's deeper than that too. Because the body that will be given in the resurrection, just as the Spirit was the one who Brought Jesus from the dead, Ephesians 1 tells us. The body that we will be given in the resurrection will be powered by God's own Spirit. Perfectly. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 10 and 11. Where he says this, If the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken or make alive your mortal bodies, by His Spirit that dwells in you. So, brothers and sisters, when you were saved, God put His very own Spirit inside of you. His very own person to dwell inside of you. Which Paul unpacks the rest of Romans 8, tells us it gives us the ability to say no to sin and mortify our flesh and live in the righteousness. But also, is the very thing, the Spirit of God is the very thing that will be the one who takes this body that's planted. On that day when we grow weak, we grow frail, and we take that path to the grave, the Holy Spirit will be the one who takes this life, this body here, and will resurrect it in the day of resurrection. (coughs) Empower it. The Spirit of Jesus Messiah dwells within you right now, and that same Spirit who has made you not a mere man, not a natural man here, will give life to your mortal bodies in that day as well through the Spirit who lives inside of you. And the fullness of what that looks like is what Paul says in Romans 8.29, For whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate, to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Paul will say this, Moreover, whom He did predestinate, then He also called. And whom He called, then He also justified. And whom He justified, then He also glorified. That's the power of resurrection when it reaches the climax, when it reaches the end. Paul will say this in 2 Corinthians 3, 7-18. He'll talk about the inner man. 
as it's being, uh, 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 um, uh, or talk about the ministry of, of Moses here and the law written on stone tablets, and he'll talk about the new covenant ministry of the Spirit, and he'll say, we are changed into His image, day by day, degree by degree, progressive sanctification. Okay, that's growth in Christ. But there's coming a day when we'll be fully changed. And that's what the resurrection guarantees. Paul will in the next chapter, 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through chapter 5, 11, he will talk about our tents, our bodies, these tents here. That will, our temporary, will one day be turned into something that is permanent and transformed. He talks about how in this world here right now, the inward part of us can grow newer and fresher each day. And the outward part of us is corrupting each day. But he makes the point that in the resurrection, the inward will have arrived and the transformed body will match up with that. In Philippians chapter 3 and verse 21, Paul says it this way. For our conversation, our citizenship is in heaven from where also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He shall change our vile body. Now that word vile there doesn't mean disgusting and evil. What it means there is our pretty humble body. He shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like to His glorious body according to the working whereby He is able even to subdue all things to Himself. So Paul's saying there will be a day here when Jesus will transform us at His appearing here. And Paul says the way He's able to do that is the same power in which He puts all things under His feet. And that is through the power of the resurrection. 1 John 3, 2 and 3. John says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God and it does not yet appear what we shall be. We're not seeing what we shall be yet. We're seeing signs of that, glimmers of that, right? But we look forward to this. We know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And everyone that has this hope in Him purifies Himself, even as He is pure. We'll be pure. The resurrection guarantees a purity because Jesus is pure. C.S. Lewis said this, picturing a glorified, resurrected person. He says this, Remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to, talking about right now, may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. In other words, he's saying if you saw what a glorified human being was like, because he radiates the glory in the face of God, you would be tempted to worship him. Because he is so like God. He makes the point here that we need to see people as not ordinary people. People made in the image of God through which God's gospel and His salvation can change them into the very reflection of Jesus. And they will one day. He says, you have never talked to a mere mortal what he means like by that is that the power of, of the gospel here uh, uh, is, a, is, is a very powerful thing when we look at people. Jesus saw people like that, didn't he? Jesus saw what Zacchaeus could be through Jesus' power. 
Jesus saw some fishermen, but they could be through Jesus' power. So that's the hope set before us in the resurrection. The Messiah already possesses this new transformed body. He's the man from heaven. And He will he has borne the image of the old corruptible humanity without sin, of course, but in its curse and its brokenness here. And we shall bear the image of Jesus Himself, Romans 8.29. And the point here in this chapter, this whole chapter, is that in the resurrection of Jesus Himself, the power of God our Creator is at work to bring beauty Ultimately, the beauty of Christ and lordship of Christ in that day in the new heavens and a new earth. Now, friends, I want to tell you there are two resurrections. There's a resurrection of the just and there's a resurrection of the unjust. Jesus speaks about in John chapter 5, verse 24 through 29. And just as beautiful and amazing it is that God will take His children and He will transform them to experience in all its fullness the beauty of the new heavens and the new earth with God at the center of all of it. But it's also true that there is a resurrection of the unjust. And as glorious as this resurrection that we look forward to is, the resurrection of the unjust will be beyond comprehension. with that life that will be suited for its place of eternal punishment. Jesus said this to a very religious person. He says, this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. He says in John 3.16, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And He says after that, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Now why did God not send His Son to condemn the world? Because He says in verse 18, He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be made manifest. Friends, as beautiful as what we will experience in the resurrection with the light, because God by His grace has brought us from darkness to light, so the opposite is true. The hideousness the fear, the torment, the suffering will be on the eternal extreme as well. And it is all based on these verses in 1 John chapter 5. This is the testimony that God has given us eternal life and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. And John says, I've written these things to you who believe in the name of Son God, so you know you have eternal life. And you believe in the name of the Son of God. But it draws a great dividing line down the center of humanity, doesn't it? That those two resurrections are two separate things, aren't they? In the sense that two separate destinations. But Jesus Christ has bridged the gap from the first Adam to the second Adam. Jesus Christ, the second Adam, has done what Adam failed to do. 
Jesus Christ died for all of us because of uh, Adam's sin has passed upon all of us. Right? We engage in Adam's sin. He's passed it on to us. Jesus Christ died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, for our wrong identity with the first Adam here. And Jesus offers to us the second Adam, the Adam who has given his righteousness for our sins and will take our sins upon him in exchange for his righteousness. There's a minister in Italy who saw the grave of a man who had died centuries before, who was an unbeliever and completely against Christianity. But he's a little afraid of Christianity too. So he had this huge stone slab put over his grave so that he wouldn't have to be raised from the dead in case there was a resurrection from the dead, just in case. And he had things carved into this stone slab, all over the slab that said, I do not want to be raised from the dead, I don't believe in it. But evidently, when he was buried, an acorn from an oak tree must have fallen into the grave. And so a hundred years later, that acorn had grown up through the grave and had split that slab open. And it was now a tall, towering, hundred-year-old oak tree. And the minister looked at it and he said, if an acorn, which has the power of you know, natural life, biological life in it, can split a slab of that magnitude, what can the acorn of God's resurrection power do in a person's life? And friends, if you are without Christ, you are still in your sins, you are still dead in your sins, you are condemned already. You are dead and buried if you do not change and facing eternal consequences of hell. But the beauty is that God has allowed the acorn of His Gospel to roll into your grave. And upon believing what Jesus has done in your place as the second Adam, He will split that grave open. And upon believing what Jesus has done for you, forgiveness of sins, and giving your life to Jesus, there's a promise here of resurrection with Jesus. And you'll join that oak tree. You'll join that oak tree. Alistair McGrath was a former atheist who became a believer in Christ, theologian, and he's also a scientist. And he wrote about this when he started to ponder the resurrection as an atheist. He said, As a young man, I was grumpy and frankly rather an arrogant atheist. I was totally convinced there was no God and that anyone who thought there was, there was needed to be locked up for their own good. I was majoring in the sciences at high school and had won a scholarship to study chemistry at Oxford University beginning in October 1971. I had every reason to believe that studying the sciences further would confirm my rampant godlessness. While waiting to go up to Oxford, I decided to work my, pale, my way through a pile of improving books. Needless to say, none of them were religious. Eventually, I came to a classic work of philosophy, Plato's Republic. I couldn't make sense of everything I read, but one image etched itself into my imagination. Plato asked his readers to imagine a group of men trapped in a cave, knowing only a world of flickering shadows cast by a fire. Having experienced no other world, they assume that the shadows are the only reality. Yet the reader knows and is meant to know that there is another world beyond the cave awaiting discovery. As I read this passage, the hard-nosed rationalist within me smiled condescendingly. Typical escapist superstition. What you see is what you get, and that's the end of the matter. Yet a still small voice within me whispered words of doubt. What if this world is only part of the story? What if this world is only a shadowland? 
What if there was something more wonderful beyond it? Began to think about that and came eventually through Scripture to the veracity of the resurrection. Believers, are you living your life for the next? Are your eyes set on the resurrection? Is that changing your today? Is that changing your right now? Or are you still tormented and hounded by a fear of death? Believers in Christ, we are planted into the ground. And just as the Adam bore the image, we are bearing the image of Adam. Because we are joined to Jesus, we were born. We will bear the image of the heavenly man and rise with him. Unbeliever, those of you who do not love God, know God, have trusted in Jesus Christ, His Son alone, for your salvation. What will it take? Right now, you're living in a world of flickering shadows cast by a fire, and you think those shadows are the only reality. But friends, the gospel of Jesus Christ declares that it is not the only reality. There is an ultimate reality, and it is the Word of God, and it is a God who has revealed Himself to all humanity in the person of Jesus Christ, who left the glories of heaven to come down to a broken, fractured, and sinful world, to live perfectly in all of its brokenness, to experience suffering at the hands of others though an innocent man, and to bear the weight of sin on his shoulders on the cross, and the rise victorious accepted by his Father for his sacrifice. That's where the ultimate reality is. That's where hope is. And that's why Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 35-49, through 49, can tell us that we are raised in glory. And so this morning, if Christ is not your foundation, He is not the oak tree that you are anchored and growing up into, today is a day of salvation. Heads bowed and eyes closed, please, as we close prayer. I wonder this morning if there is someone here who would say, I am not joined with the second Adam. I bear so much resemblance with the first Adam. And I have not been made alive. I have not been born again, reborn. I have not been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. I have not been washed of my sins. I am not utterly depending on Jesus Christ. And today is the day when I am transferring my trust from whatever it was before to Jesus Christ alone. If today you would say that this morning, I'd like you to lift your hand. And believers, are you living as well, just as I described? That your security is rooted in a God who became man and was crucified and buried and resurrected? Is that resurrection hope your new fuel? Are the ways that you treat others, the ways that you treat God's Word, the ways you treat your relationship with this one, reflective of living hope as we sang today? The Holy Spirit is bringing things to your heart that you need to repent of. Please do so right now at your seat. Life with God.
as a foretaste right now of the glory divine. Lord, thank you for all you teach us through your word. Thank you for your grace. Lord, we can't walk worthy of this calling that you've called us to without your power. We can't do it in our own strength. And Lord, we need that same Spirit who will one day raise us from the dead to raise us from sin, to raise us from our turning away from you and help us to live in that day by day and in faith and repentance continually uh, walk in, in, your, in your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Fair dismissed. I see deacons quickly, please.